0: Amen. Thank you so much. And good morning. So good to be with you as we gather together, worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the study of God's word is the continuation of our worship. I'd love for you to take your Bibles now, and we're attuning to Acts chapter 21, where we had left off. And uh, it's a more sizable portion of Scripture that we're going to be examining this morning, from verse 27 of the 21st chapter on into. Uh, chapter 22 and verse 21. And this has to do with the, uh, one of the most famous speeches in all of the scriptures. It's known as the, uh, the speech of the stairs. It's where the Apostle Paul is going to explain in a very confused setting where the entire Jewish population in Jerusalem seems to be opposed to him. He's going to grip their attention, calm their spirits, and speak powerfully as to the way in which God's grace broke into his life. This morning, if you look at your life story and you span the years in your thought process as to where was God? And when did God break in? My my prayer is that as you look at this passage this morning, you're going to see glimpses of yourself, gain a greater understanding of who God is, make a connection between the two. I'd like to read from verse 27 down through verse 36 to get our bearings. The physician, Luke, tells us that when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia seeking him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. And moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. But they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and Dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be Brought to the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed and they were crying out Away with him. Sound vaguely familiar? His Messiah faced similar things. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. So now, our Lord, what we want to do is to explore this passage together. It's timeless. And yes, the time changed last night. But there is something timeless, not time bound, when it comes to the whole matter of your grace. Your grace broke into Paul's life when he was utterly opposed to your will, though he thought he was performing your will. For ones who are religious performers, by all appearances, it looks like they are pursuing your will, but in reality, Father, they're they're opposing it. Break in. Interrupt their lives with your grace. For the one in one of these services today or watching via live stream, YouTube, wounded, bruised, life has delivered some hard hits, they've been staggered but they're still walking. Envelop them now in your grace. They have a Savior who faced challenges of life, yet went to the cross to die for us so we could stand strong in him. Pour your grace upon that person today. You know the needs that are here, present in this building, present in various homes as people are watching. You know the needs of the arms. You know what keeps us awake at night. You see the tears on the pillows that no one else sees. You peer into the struggles of the heart that no one else can perceive. And you're there, and your grace is sufficient. So, Father, these moments to come are important as we continue in our worship. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus, Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Together we are following in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, we made our way through a number of settings in Israel, Greece modern-day Turkey eventually to Rome there's a painting that is found in Italy that your tour guide will have you stop and examine and ponder it's a painting that portrays the Apostle Paul's experience on the road to Damascus you'll notice that he's prostrate on the ground he has been staggered by grace have you? There's something staggering about grace when it breaks in. What's fascinating about the Apostle Paul's experience, unlike yours or mine, you'll notice that there is a light emanating from the heavens. I call this descending grace. And Paul can't earn his salvation, Paul, in fact, is not pursuing God. The reality is, is that God is pursuing Paul, known at that time as Saul. Grace breaks in. Has grace broken into your life? For some, it happens at a very early age, three, four, five. Others are seized by the story of Jesus dying for our sins in their teenage years, and there are others. It's the latter years of life. The issue is not the age of life. The issue is not the stage of life. The issue is grace breaking into our lives. This is grace breaking in. His grace broke into your life. It did with the apostle Paul, known at that time as Saul of Tarsus. But now what we want to do is to examine carefully the events that were leading up to this extraordinary event that has been described throughout history as the the speech on the stairs, where he calms the crowd, looks carefully to their eyes, and speaks grace to their hearts. There's three aspects to this. So you're standing there and you're looking at this painting and your tour guide is telling you the story. It's the story of grace. You've got a story. Paul had a story. And what I wanna do now is to think through our story. We've got our own personal dynamics. What we share in common, if we know Christ as Savior, it's the story of grace, and now we've got to figure out how to tell it well. Three aspects come to my mind. First comes out of verse 27 down through verse 36. The number one, when it's time to tell your story of God's grace, I want to begin with you this morning by noting what we'll call the false assumptions that we are going to need to recognize because in a fallen world like ours in a confused culture like ours secular society has false assumptions about who Christians are false assumptions about what Christianity is all about false assumptions with the way in which Jesus Christ lived his life for the purpose of dying for our sins and our story has got to explode the false assumptions in the culture. Are you finding ways to do that? Now, you pick it up in verse 27. The physician is penning these thoughts for you and for me, Luke. And he's telling us now that there's been a period of time where the Apostle Paul has, for seven days, been, uh, been going through what are known in Jewish circles as purification rites. And the Jews from Asia, evidently, see him in the temple. And they stir up the whole crowd. They lay hands on him. You see it there in verse 27? Now, most likely, these are individuals that came from Ephesus. Today, modern-day Turkey, it's along the, the western shoreline, about three miles set in. And now they assume that what Paul is doing at this point is that he is disrupting and he is flouting and he is threatening the entire system of Judaism. So in verse 28, <coughs> a half truth combined with a lie is wedded together where we are told them, crying out, Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone. Everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Now, there's irony that that would be the case because the Apostle Paul has just gone through Jewish rites to get to this particular point. But now they're making this statement against him, but add to it this assumption. He even brought Greeks into the temple And it's defiled this holy place. Where did they come to this conclusion? Well, guilt by association, I guess. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul, see the word supposed? I've marked it there. There's where assumptions kick in. They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Have you ever had to deal with false assumptions about you? Who you are, what you believe, what you've experienced. You know, what's interesting is that in the temple, uh, right near the court of the women, about four feet high were warning signs posted at intervals in both Greek and Latin. Quote, any foreigner who passes this point will be responsible for his own death, unquote. So with that false assumption about Trophimus, how on earth did he get back out on the streets? Assumptions break down in the face of realities. And they break down when you are living your reality in the midst of people who need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. But you see, what Paul has done is that he has so stirred up the city. In fact, the very word is used there in verse 30. The people ran together, they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. I reminded of the story of Solomon Ginsburg. He ministered effectively to the Jewish population in Brazil in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. A Jew born, raised in Poland, came to saving faith in Yeshua as his Messiah, in london began witnessing to fellow jews the great missionary hudson taylor prayed over him as he was commissioned to go to brazil and arriving in brazil he began to minister effectively sharing the gospel of jesus christ to the jewish population there. Sizable crowds listening in sometimes upwards to five thousand as he proclaimed yeshua the one Messiah that they were, in fact, needing. But as the biographer tells us, success only invited opposition. More than one assassin was assigned to take Ginsburg's life. But time and again, they failed to carry out their assignments. But there's one particular account that stands out for me was when the man by the name of Antonio Silvino, known in Brazil as a notorious bandit, knocked at Ginsburg's door. Now, Ginsburg, we are told, convinced that this was the end, and prayed a final prayer and went to the door only to discover that the hired bandit who had planned to kill him while he had been speaking had been so convicted by his message of grace that he was unable to do so. And now he was at the door seeking mercy and asking what he must do to be saved. The writer tells us again Ginsberg was spared Get this. Later on, a letter came from a woman's Bible study in America saying that they had been praying for him that very day, the very day that Silvino had come to kill this man who had been proclaiming Yeshua as Messiah, Jesus. Grace breaks in. And grace breaks in at the door of life. Great Grace breaks in on the highway of life. Grace breaks in, has he broken into your life? So now we're dealing with assumptions. And now the people on the street, guilt by association, they see the apostle Paul, who is hanging with Trophimus from Ephesus, who is there in Jerusalem with Paul. They suppose that Paul had brought him into the temple. Assumption. So in verse 30, all the city was stirred up. The people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once, at once the gates were shut. Do you see it there in verse 30? Now in the temple, there is an individual known as the Sargon. He is the chief of the temple guard. Well, he apparently ordered at this point the doors at the court of the women to be shut in order to keep the violence out. Otherwise, blood would be spilled in the temple proper. And, well, that was simply viewed then as defilement. This past week, I was reading in the classic book on mob violence. It comes out of the 1800s. All political theorists know this book well written by Charles McKay, entitled, The Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. and I thought about that when I was looking at what was happening this weekend in Portland, and in Seattle, and in LA. McKay wrote, in reading the history of nations, <coughs> we find that, like individuals, they have their whims and their peculiarities. There are seasons of excitement and recklessness. When they care not what they do, we find that whole communities suddenly fix their minds upon one object and go mad in its pursuit. That millions of people become simultaneously impressed with one delusion and run after it till their attention is caught by some new folly, more captivating than the first. Well, no, there's a delusion. They have created a lie, they've spread the lie, there's frenzy on the streets. And if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that there is an intensity to religious fervor second to none globally. I was struck by that. Madeleine Albright. In one of her books, described her first encounter with Jerusalem. That there was a religious fervor, second to none, in all of her work as an ambassador. That seized her attention. Well, these people so seized Paul's attention, they've seized him. And now the gates are shut. He's vulnerable. But when you are in God's hands, you are never vulnerable. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He's peering down. For you see, in the northern part of the Temple Mount, there is what is known as the Fortress Antonia. It housed a permanent Roman garrison of about 600 men, a cohort. And from its towers, the guards would be able to see what exactly is going on here what i want you to see next is that your sovereign god uses an unbelieving gentile to protect a believing jew from an unbelieving jewish riot that's your sovereign god And so when they saw the tribune and the soldiers coming at them, they stopped beating Paul. And the tribune came up, arrested him, ordered him to be bound with two chains. There's due process for you. He inquired who he was. What he had done? Now, capture the frenzy, the frenzy, The fervor, the intensity of it all. Some in the crowd are shouting one thing. Some another. As he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps... He was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For you see in verse 36, all based upon wrong assumptions leading to false accusations, the mob of the people were followed, crying out "Away with him. This sound familiar? anything similar to that happen in the streets of Jerusalem? But then the physician penned these thoughts in chapter 23 of his gospel where in verse 18 they all cried out together away with this man and release to us Barabbas Well, we've got to get a sense of what this is all about, don't we? What's going on, and in particular, the question is, where are we in Jerusalem? A picture or two now appears on the screen for you to ponder. This is Fortress Antonia. It's, It's named for Mark Antony by his friend Herod the Great. So there's the fortress. They would have descended the steps from the fortress, these soldiers, into the courtyard, lift the Apostle Paul up. And so here are now secularized, unbelieving Roman soldiers, protecting a believing Jew from unbelieving Jews. Carrying up the steps so that God in his sovereign purposes is going to allow Paul to share the story of grace To this crowd of people, only God can pull something like that off. But then you need something more to look at. Look at the next picture. Gives us a sense of where he would have stood. Gives us a sense of how he would speak. It gives us a sense of what God was doing in Paul's life. When Bernard Gilpin was accused of heresy in London and set for trial. His favorite proverb was, all things are for the best. And on his journey, he, he broke his leg and a friend of his scorn asked, is it all for the best now? I still believe so, he said. And it was, but because before he was able to resume his journey because of the broken leg. Queen Mary died, and instead of going to London to be burned, he was able to return home and continue sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Accidents in time are in reality appointments with time when God's sovereign hand is part of the journey of your life. You've got a story to tell. The story of your life comes in multiple colors. Use them all. And put it out in such a way that that hurting person is going to be able to say, I don't understand right now why I'm going through what I'm going through, but you've just told me something about what you've gone through. And what you've gone through is going to help me to get through so I get to go to where I need to be. Prepared to do that? If so, then you're on now as you're developing your story to the second of three features that's found here. The second of all, when it's time to tell your story of God's grace, I want you to note further with me the strategic opportunities that you and I we need to embrace. And you might say to yourself, this is a strategic opportunity. In verse 37, Paul's about to be brought into the barracks. I love what unfolds here. Powerful. He says to the tribune, May I say something to you? Look what captures the tribune's attention. Do you know Greek? That was typically the language of fairly sophisticated people, not people creating riots out on the streets. Citizenship in the Greek cities valued their their Greek language. Here now is the Apostle Paul, and he he is speaking Greek to this man. In other words, Paul has kept his wits in the midst of the chaos. And do you keep your wits in the midst of the chaos that you face medically, relationally? He shifted into a language that only this soldier would be able to appreciate. But now this, this soldier, he's got a question. Are you not the Egyptian then? Well, th- Who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? In other words, the tribune also made an assumption. Now, the crowds made an assumption. The secular tribune, the Roman, has made an assumption. And what is it about these, these assassins, anyways? Well, the word for assassin here, the sicarii, these were the Jewish terrorists who carried uh, curved daggers in their cloaks and then would brutally stab to death political leaders in the midst of crowds in the temple and then slip away unseen. It was assumed that he was the leader of the crowd. Paul's now got to tackle this false assumption. How does he go about doing it? Paul replied, and he gives him his credentials. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now you can imagine the heart, it's racing. (laughs) Have you ever had a racing heart? You're standing now in front of the crowd. You're going to have to take a deep breath. And you're going to talk about grace. I beg you, speak to the crowd. Speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand. See how he's managing his emotions? You can do that when grace has gripped your heart. And when there was a great hush, he was speaking previously in Greek. See how engaged his mind is? He addressed him in the Hebrew language. When you are facing the chaos of life, prepare yourself, bathe yourself in grace. Use flexible methods for fluid times. He shifts languages and doesn't miss a beat. And what is his moment? He stands before them and in verse 1 of the 22nd chapter says to them, brothers and sisters. What's he doing? He's found his relational on-ramp. Here's how he wants to begin. I'm not your adversary. I'm your brother. Brothers and fathers. He's looking generationally. Hear the defense, Greek word apologia, apologetics. He's about to do apologetics defend the faith that I now make before you. He stands strong in the battles of life. Grace equips you to stand strong in the battles of your life. During a fierce battle with the Union Army, and the tide of battle was going against the Confederates, A lot of them were retreating, but there was one who refused to turn his back. His name was Thomas Jonathan Jackson. Observing their fearless general, a soldier shouted out, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. The historian Mark Brimsley writes, a battlefield of life is a deadly place even for generals. It would be naive to suppose Jackson never felt fear but invariably he explained extraordinary calm under fire. It was the grace of calm in the fire of life. A calm too deep and masterful to be mere pretense. Later, after the battle at Manassas, someone asked him how he managed to do it. Response, quote, My faith in Jesus Christ teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed, God knows the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready no matter when it may overtake me. And then he added, That is the best way all people should live. And then all would be equally brave. The grace of calm under fire. Does that distinguish your life in the midst of life's turmoil? It's part of your story, you know. You've been dealing with the false assumptions that we all need to recognize. Second of all, the strategic opportunities we need to embrace. And in the midst of life's opposition, God gives you life opportunities. Embrace them. There's a third aspect now that emerges out of all this as you're preparing to tell your story. Because thirdly, I now want to note with you the essential points that you and I, that we need to highlight. We all have a story. People want their story to be heard. They're also curious about your story. The question is, what do you highlight? What do you leave out? Unpack it with me. There's a before, there is a during, and there's an after to this particular story. Let's start with the the before. It's found in verses, in verse three down through verse five he addresses them in the Hebrew language. They become even more quiet. And then he says, I'm a Jew. He's just said brothers and fathers. Now to reinforce his connectedness, he says, I'm a Jew. They're Jews, I'm a Jew. Born in Tarsus and Cilicia, that would have raised eyebrows because that means that he's from the Upper echelon of life. Brought up in this city. Means again, he's identifying with them. I know know the ins and the outs. I know the corners of the city. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now that would really raise eyebrows. He would be the esteemed teacher in the city. In other words, what he's doing, he's taking his life story and he's highlighting connecting points. And as you unpack your life story, the story of grace, start with your befores, look for highlights, look for connecting points. What grips the attention of those listening? Oh, man. According to the strict manner of the law, our fathers being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He's even affirming them. You are zealous people. I respect that. And then he adds this caveat in case they didn't know. In verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death. And you say, Gary, what does he mean by this way? Well, as we've noted, before they were known as Christians... Followers of Jesus were known as the way. Why in Acts chapter 9 verse 2, he had asked for letters to go to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I persecuted this way to the death, binding, delivering to prison men and women as he is standing there outside the prison. This is why this has famously been known as the speech of the stairs. Here's the grace of the before unpacked. Delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest, whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there, bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Maybe even brought into the fortress as he stands on the steps. And that's his before. What's your before? Chakos, as he reflected upon his before, in the book Loving God said, the real legacy of my life was my greatest failure, that I was an ex-con. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. And maybe right now, as you're looking over your story, you're saying, I've had some experiences where they were anything but glorious. But God can use the stories and the highlights of your life to bring about a dramatic change in the lives of others. How are you going to use them? There's your before. Before. But here comes your during. You're up to verse 6. And you draw a line from verse 6 back to verse 4, don't you? Because in verse 4 he said, I persecuted this way. In verse 6 now, recounting his experience, he says, and I was on my way. Hmm. Oh, Luke doesn't miss a beat, does he? He's using irony. Drew near to Damascus about noon. A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground. Heard a voice saying to me, Saw, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Not Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the way? Why are you persecuting me? And just as Paul had used an on-ramp that was relational when he cried out brothers and fathers in verse 1. God uses his on-ramp in verse 7. Saul, saw; he personalizes this. Get personal with people. Why are you persecuting me? you got to answer, you know. When God asks, you answer. But notice how he answers. He answers a question with a question. happens all the time in the Bible. Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And oh, can you imagine now the heartbeat? Because Saul of Tarsus was standing there as Stephen was being killed. And Stephen was crying out to the crowd that was opposed to him that he saw the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the risen one, standing, observing. And now this Apostle Paul, previously saw of Tarsus, is being confronted with the very one that Stephen had witnessed. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And now those who are with me, they saw the Lord, but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And so I said, what shall I do, Lord? Lord, in a few weeks, Easter Sunday, we talk about the Savior, Jesus Christ. The question of the hour will be, In light of this, what do I do, Lord? If Christ is truly risen, evidentially in time, existentially now in my life, what do I do with this? Rise, go into Damascus. You'll be told all that's appointed for you to do. God's got an appointment. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And there you have it. This man is newly saved, and he is vulnerable in grace. How will those treat people treat him when he arrives on the scene and they thought that the persecutor had just walked in and he was now blind? Would they take his life? All of a sudden, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law. Paul's recounting his story. Do you recount your story? Well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. He's connecting with the Jewish crowd, listening to this testimony unpacked. Came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, isn't this how he began? Brothers and fathers in verse 1. Now this man is saying, Brother Saul, receive your sight. That very hour I received my sight, saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers. Didn't he just say, brothers and fathers, in verse 1? See how he's tying it all together? The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Now the brilliant physician at this point wants you to draw a line from verse 10 where it says, you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. To verse 14, the God of our fathers appointed you. The word appoint appears twice. To know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone whom you've seen and heard. And now, and now, why do you wait well, you're sitting around, rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. And I was looking at that in the, in the Greek this week, trying to pull it all together, because you know in, in Romans, in Romans chapter 10, we are told that the Apostle Paul had written about such things and said, whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. And in verse 13, using the very same word that Ananias uses and speaking to him originally in Damascus, writes, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And grammatically, he was not to wash away his sins by being baptized in water. He was to be baptized in water because he had called on the name of the Lord. And his sins have been washed away. It's as simple, as significant as that. Get up, get yourself baptized, and testimony to your salvation. Wash away your sins by calling on the name of the Lord, and you're up now to the after. For when I had returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And there's some history behind that. The Jews who had circulated around the temple would have admired this. And saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now he's getting, he's bringing the timeless into the timely. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by, approving, watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he, God, said to me, Paul, go. I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. And oh, is that going to get the crowd mad? But we'll deal with that next week. But in the meantime, Stan Telchin tells his story, a Jew who becomes a Christian, a Jewish Christian. He tells of the anguish he felt when his 21-year-old daughter told the family she put her faith in Yeshua, his Messiah, Jesus. It was shocking news, he writes, that jolted our tranquility, but in the weeks, months that followed, as we observed her her joy, her peace, we began to ask about Jesus. We're told that Stan initially studied the Bible in an effort to refute her, but as time passed, he became a believer as did his wife, daughter, all came to faith independent of one another, and so as he was being interviewed, he was asked, did you lose your Jewishness? And Stan responded, I am a Jew. I was born a Jew. I will die a Jew. And even if I were it were possible for me to reject my Jewish identity and heritage, I would never do so. I'm a Jew by birth, by desire. As a matter of fact, I'm so comfortable and so secure in my Jewish identity that I am not threatened by the fears and the anxieties of some who question it. My Jewishness was not conferred upon me by public opinion. But as a Jew, I'm even more sensitive to the teachings of Yeshua, Jesus, who was born a Jew, lived as a Jew, chose others as Jews as his disciples, loved the Jewish people, and as Jews, we are meant and sent to the rest of humanity to bring the good news that Jesus died. For all of our sins, I treasure my heritage, and I treasure my Savior. Has God arrested you in your journey? You've got a story to tell. It's a story of grace, whether you're saved at 3 or 93. It's not the age of life. It's not the stage of life. It's the grace of God delivered in life. It's the grace that saves. Let's stand together. All of us are on a journey. All of us have a story. But I pray for all the people in this building today and for those watching right now and will be watching in the days to come they bring the story of grace to the journey of life. For some, the before didn't involve much time. and the after, a lot of time. For some, the during was dramatic, and for others, it was just kind of quiet, private, personal in the heart. But the issue is not the age of our lives nor the stage of our lives. The issue is your grace that's given to bring us life. So, if there's any father today in these services, any involved online and in studying your word and now processing what's just been unpacked, speak to the heart. We're praying now that grace breaks into their journey and give them a real story, the true story, the story to highlight and share story of grace. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.